Hello everyone and welcome to the Unanswered Questions True Crime Podcast. I have spent hours and hours investigating this. He basically told her that people have been killed. Journalists, independent investigators, people like that disappeared. It frightened her to the bone. There's more to the story than meets the eye. There were rumors of torture and homicide and sexual abuse, all sorts of egregious, horrendous crimes. He was polygraphed three times. Each of those three showed evasions. His resumes were a skeleton of truth. He was mad at the world, and particularly mad at the government. The study that he commissioned that described a fictional terrorist attack. If people have died over this, it means you're getting close to the truth. You don't have to be a conspiracy theorist to say, what the fuck? Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of my new podcast, Unanswered Questions, where every week we will endeavour to discuss a mysterious unsolved case that has many lingering unanswered questions. So I hope you enjoy and as always leave me some feedback on what you think about the show and rate it as well. Now on to the show. This week we'll be talking about the strange death of George Reeves. Now George Reeves, born George Kiefer Brewer, born on January 5th of 1914 and died June 16th of 1959, was an American actor. He is best known for portraying Superman in the television series Adventures of Superman from 1952 to 1958. His death at age 45 from a gunshot remains controversial. The official finding was suicide, but some believe that he was murdered or the victim of an accidental shooting. Now we're going to get into his early life. Reeves was born January 5th of 1914 as George Kiefer Brewer in Woolstock, Iowa, the son of Donald Carl Brewer and Helen Leshka. Reeves was born five months into their marriage and the couple separated soon after Reeves' birth. At this time, Reeves and his mother moved from Iowa to Ashland, Kentucky to stay with relatives for a time and then to her home of Galesburg, Illinois. Later, Reeves' mother, who was of German descent, moved to California to stay with her sister. There, she had met and married Frank Joseph Bissolo by 1927, according to that year's federal census. Reeves' father married Helen Schultz in 1925. Reeves reportedly never saw his father again, and in 1927, Frank Bissolo adopted George at age 13 as his own son, and the boy took on his stepfather's last name, according to George Bissolo. The Bissolo marriage lasted 15 years years ending in divorce with the couple separating while Reeves was away visiting relatives. When he returned his mother told him his stepfather had committed suicide. Now according to biographer Jim Beaver Reeves did not know for several years that Bessalo was still alive. Bessalo actually died March 4th of 1944 at age 51 when his adopted son was well into his movie career. Reeves began acting and singing in high school and continued performing on stage as a student at Pasadena Junior College. Now we're going to get into his acting career. While studying acting at the Pasadena Playhouse, Reeves met his future wife Eleanor Needles, great-great-granddaughter of circus magnate John Robinson, founder of the John Robinson Circus. They married on September 22nd of 1940 in San Gabriel, California at the Church of Our Saviour. They had no children and divorced 10 years later. Reeves' film career began in 1939 when he was cast as Stuart Tarleton, incorrectly listed in the film's credit as Brent Tarleton, one of Scarlett O'Hara's suitors in Gone with the Wind. It was a minor role, but he and Fred Crane were in the film's opening scene. Reeves and Crane both dyed their hair to portray the Tarleton twins. After Gone with the Wind was filmed, Reeves returned to the Pasadena Playhouse and was given the lead role in the play Pancho. This part directly led to his being contracted to Warner Brothers. Warner changed his professional name to George 
George Reeves. His Gone with the Wind screen credit reflects the change. Between the start of production on Gone with the Wind and its release 12 months later, several films on his Warner contract were made and released, making Gone with the Wild his first film role, but his fifth film release. He starred in a number of two real short subjects and appeared in several B pictures including two with future president of the United States Ronald Reagan and three with James Cagney, Torrid Zone, The Fighting 69th and The Strawberry Blonde. These roles did little to advance Reeves' career and his contract with Warners was dissolved by mutual consent. Released from his Warner contract, he signed a contract at 20th Century Fox, but was released after only a handful of films, one of which was the Charlie Chan movie Dead Men Tell. 20th Century Fox loaned him to producer Alexandra Corder to co-star with Merle Oberyn in Lydia, a box office failure, after which he freelanced looking to find work in westerns. His friend Teddy Sherman introduced him to her father, producer Harry Sherman, who asked Reeves to do a screen test with Teddy for the Hopalong Cassidy films. Reeves and Sherman impressed the casting director by performing seven pages of script in a single take without pause. Reeves appeared in five Hopalong Cassidy westerns before being cast as Lieutenant John Summers opposite Claudette Colbert in So Proudly We Hail, a 1942 war drama for Paramount Pictures, which signed Reeves up for two films a year. However, Reeves was inspired by So Proudly We Hail to put his budding acting career on hold and enlist in the US Army. He was drafted in early 1943 and he was assigned to the US Army Air Forces and performed in the USAAF's Broadway show Winged Victory. The long Broadway run was followed by a national tour and a movie version. Reeves was then transferred to the Army Air Force's first motion picture unit where he made training films. Discharged at the war's end, Reeves returned to Hollywood. Many studios were slowing down their production schedules, however some production units had shut down completely. He appeared in a pair of outdoor thrillers with Ralph Boyd. As more and more time passed between acting jobs paying less and less, Reeves was reduced to appearing in a low-budget series produced by Sam Katzman, The Adventures of Sir Galahad, and taking a second job digging cesspools. Reeves fit the rugged requirements of the roles and with his retentive memory for dialogue, he did well under rushed production conditions. He was able to play against type and starred as a villainous gold hunter in a Johnny Wesmuller jungle gym film. Separated from his wife, their divorce became final in 1950, Reeves moved to New York City in 1949. He appeared on live television anthology programs as well as on radio and then returned to Hollywood in 1951 for a role in a Fitz Lang film Rancho Notorious. In 1953, Reeves played a minor character Sergeant Malin Stark in From Here to Eternity. The film won the Academy Award for Best Picture and gave Reeves the distinction of appearing in two Best Picture films. Now we get into his role as Superman. In June of 1951, Reeves was offered the role of Superman in a new television series titled Adventures of Superman. He was initially reluctant to take the role because, like many actors of his time, he considered television unimportant and believed few would see his work. The half-hour films were shot on tight schedules. At least two shows were made every six days. According to commentaries on the Adventures of Superman DVD sets, multiple scripts were filmed simultaneously to take advantage of the standing sets. For example, all of Perry White's office scenes for three or four episodes would be shot the same day and the various apartment scenes would be done consecutively. 
Reeves' career as Superman had begun with Superman and the Mole Men and film intended both as a B-picture and as a pilot for the TV series. Immediately after completing it, Reeves and the crew began production of the first season's episode, all shot over 13 weeks, in the summer of 1951. The series went on the air the following year and Reeves was amazed at becoming a national celebrity. In 1952, the struggling ABC network purchased the show for national broadcast, which gave him greater visibility. The Superman cast members had restrictive contracts, however, preventing them from taking on other work that might interfere with the series. Except for the second season, the Superman schedule was brief, 13 shows shot two per week, a total of seven weeks out of a year, but all had a 30-day clause which meant that the producers could demand their exclusive services for a new season on four weeks' notice. This prevented long-term work on major films with long schedules, stage plays that might lead to a lengthy run, or any other series work. Reeves, however, earned additional income from personal appearances. He had affection for his young fans and took his role model status quite seriously. He avoided smoking cigarettes where children could see him and eventually quit smoking altogether. He kept his private life discreet, including a romantic relationship with Tony Mannix, wife of Metro Goldwyn Mayer general manager Eddie Mannix. Now, Camille Antonia Tony Lanier Mannix was a former Ziegfeld Follies showgirl when she met Mannix. She even had a key role in a movie that was made about Florence Siegfried, the great Siegfried, which came out in 1936, one of her few actual film credits. For many years, she was content to be squired around Hollywood on Mannix's arm as a trophy wife, even before they got married. She was drawn to money and power, and Mannix had both during the golden age of Hollywood. Eight years older than Reeves, Tony nonetheless attracted him and they had a torrid long-term relationship which was fully known to Mannix, who had a Japanese mistress of his own. Tony and Reeves were fairly public with their arrangement, but the press, out of respect for the clout that Mannix wielded, never exposed the relationship outside the industry and, because she was still legally married, Reeves never brought her to any of his public functions for fear of what it would do to his squeaky clean Superman image. Now, as I understand it, this relationship Reeves had with Tony Maddox was a three-year affair as Tony at the time was married to a notorious fixer for MGM Studios. Eddie Maddox wasn't just a heavy in Hollywood, he was also rumoured to have mob connections. Now, in a wild turn of events, the alleged problem with the situation was not the affair itself. Jilted husband Eddie had his own liaisons outside of the marriage and allegedly had no problem with his wife's relationship with Reeves. The issue, however, was that Reeves eventually broke Tony's heart when and he called it off to begin a relationship with the woman who would then go on to become his fiancée, Lenore Lemon. Eddie was not happy when his wife wasn't happy. Now, in the documentary Look Up in the Sky, The Amazing Story of Superman, Jack Larson said that when he first met Reeves, he told him that he enjoyed his performance in So Proudly We Hail. According to Larson, Reeves said that if Mark Sandrich had not died, he would not be there in this monkey suit. According to Larson, Reeves also said he would feel better about the role if he knew he had any adult fans, but never learned that The Adventures of Superman had adult fans, even during its original broadcast run. Between the first and second seasons of Superman, Reeves got spadonic acting assignments in one-shot TV anthology programs and in two feature films, those being Forever Female in 1953 and Fritz Lang's The Blue Gardena in 1953, but by the time the series was aired nationwide, Reeves found himself so associated with Superman and Clark Kent that it was difficult for him to find other roles. 
Reeves worked tirelessly with Tony Maddox to raise money to fight, and I'm going to butcher this, I do apologize, Myasthenia Gravis. He served as national chairman to the Myasthenia Gravis Foundation in 1955. During the second season, Reeves appeared in a short film for the Treasury Department entitled Stamp Day for Superman, in which he caught the villains and told children why they should invest in government savings stamps. After two seasons, Reeves was dissatisfied with his salary and the show's one-dimensional role. He was 40 years old and wanted to quit and move on with his career. The producers looked elsewhere for a new star. Now, Reeves spoke out about these difficulties in a 1958 Evening Star article, frankly titled, No Work for Superman. When asked why he took the role, he said simply, quote, I was hungry. End quote. But after six years, he was having a hard time pushing his career forward. The producers wouldn't give me a job. They'd take one look at me and say it was impossible, Reeves said. End quote. The issues wasn't just career frustration, though. While Reeves may have been famous for being Superman, the role wasn't making him a whole lot of money. The actors were poorly paid, and even after Reeves received a raise after trying and failing to leave the show after three seasons, he found himself struggling for money, unable to get the roles he really wanted and taxed for time given to the all-consuming nature of his Superman commitments. Reeves established his own production company and conceived a TV adventure series called Port of Entry, which would be shot on location in Hawaii and Mexico. Reeves wrote the pilot script himself, however Superman producers offered him a salary increase and he returned to the series. He was reportedly making $5,000, about $50,000 in today's dollars per week, but only while the show was in production, about eight weeks each year. As for Port of Entry, Reeves was never able to gain financing for the project and the show was never made. In 1957, the producers considered a theatrical film Superman and the Secret Planet. A script was commissioned from David Chandler, who had written many of the TV scripts. In 1959, however, negotiations began for a renewal of the series, with 26 episodes scheduled to go into production. By mid-1959, contracts were signed, costumes refitted, and new teleplay writers assigned. Noel Neal was quoted as saying that the cast of Superman was ready to do a new series of the still-popular show. His good friend Bill Walsh, a producer at Disney Studios, gave Reeves a prominent role in Westwood Ho! The Wagons, released in 1956, in which Reeves wore a beard and moustache. It was to be his final feature film appearance. Attempting to showcase his versatility, Reeves sang on The Tony Bennett Show in August of 1956. He appeared as Superman on I Love Lucy, episode 165, Lucy and Superman, in 1957. Character actor Ben Weldon had acted with Reeves in the Warner Brothers. Days and frequently guest starred on Superman. He said, and I quote, After the I Love Lucy show, Superman was no longer a challenge to him. I know he enjoyed the role, but he used to say, Here I am, wasting my life, end quote. Reeves, Noel Neal, I'm going to butcher these names, Navitadad, Vatico, and Jean LaBelle and a trio of musicians toured with a public appearance show from 1957 onward. The first half of the show was a Superman sketch in which Reeves and Neal performed with LaBelle as a villain called Mr. Kryptonite who captured Lois Lane. Kent then rushed off stage to return a Superman who came to rescue and fought with the bad guy. The second half of the show was Reeves out of costume as himself, singing and accompanying himself on the guitar. Vayako and Neil accompanied him in duets. Reeves and Tony Maddox split in 1958, and Reeves announced his engagement to society playgirl Lenore Lemon. 
Now, little is known about the background of Lenore Lemon. She was known in her early years as a member of the so-called Cafe Society. Now, as I understand it, this was the collective description for the aptly named beautiful people who gathered in fashionable cafes and restaurants in Paris, London, Rome, or New York, beginning in the late 1800s. Although members of the Cafe Society were not necessarily members of society's elite, they attended each other's private dinners and balls and took holidays in exotic locations or at elegant resorts. Now, as I understand it, in the United States, the term cafe society described those who did their entertaining semi-publicly in restaurants and nightclubs and who would often include among their group movie stars and sports celebrities. They were generally publicity hounds who wanted to be seen and photographed and written up in society and gossip columns. In the late 1950s, thanks to the ready availability of air travel, the term jet set and jet setters became more appropriate and descriptive. In 1941, Lenore married Jacob L. Jackie Webb, who was reportedly a descendant of railroad magnate and multimillionaire Cornelius Vanderbilt. The marriage was short-lived, however, once she quickly discovered that he was almost completely tattooed, known in tattoo circles as a full suit. She left him and he later sued her for divorce on grounds of desertion. Once she and Reeves became deeply involved, Lenore proved to be as possessive, protective, and as jealous as Tony. Nonetheless, Reeves apparently loved her. He broke off his relationship with Tony, resulting in a nasty confrontation. One in which no expletives were held back. Lenore soon moved into the Benedict Canyon house Tony bought for him. Reeves was apparently scheduled to marry Lemon on June 19th and then spend their honeymoon in Tijuana. While he and Lemon were supposed to get married only a few days after his death, Lemon allegedly had soured on him after she realised the older Superman wasn't quite the loaded Hollywood player she thought he was. Their relationship was full of booze and bickering, and after his death, it was revealed that he left everything to Tony, which could have been an oversight given he and Lemon had only been together six months. He complained to friends, columnists, and his mother of his financial problems. The planned revival of Superman was apparently a small lifeline. Reeves had also hoped to direct a low-budget science fiction film written by a friend of his from his Pasadena Playhouse days, and he discussed the project with his first Lois Lane, Phyllis Coates, the previous year. However, Reeves and his partner failed to find financing and the film was never made. Another Superman stage show was scheduled for July with a planned stage tour of Australia. Reeves had options for making a living, but these options apparently all involved playing Superman again, a role that he was not eager to reprise at age 45. Jack Larson and Noel Neal both remembered Reeves as a noble southern gentleman, even though he was from Iowa, with a sign on his dressing room door that said, Honest George, the people's friend. Reeves had been made a Kentucky colonel during a publicity trip in the south, and the sign on his dressing room door was replaced with a new one that read, Honest George, also known as Colonel Reeves created by the show's prop department. A photo of a smiling Reeves and the sign appears in Gary Grossman's book about the show. Now we get into the death of George Reeves. The night of Reeves' death on June 15th of 1959, in typical fashion, Reeves and Lemon went out for a boozy night on the town. They got home around 11pm. A couple hours later, Carol Van Ronkel and William Bliss stopped by for a drink. Lemon and writer Robert Condon, who was staying at the house, were more than happy to entertain the group, but Reeves was already in bed and was not pleased by the ruckus downstairs. According to the statements given to the police, statements that were no doubt slurred, Reeves came down to ask them to be quiet. They convinced him to stay for a drink, then, and then he stomped his way back upstairs. It was then that Lemon's actions became truly strange. Quote, He's going upstairs to shoot himself, she allegedly said. A noise echoed. See, he's opening the drawer to get the gun. 
Then there was a gunshot. I told you, he's shot himself. End quote. When the cops arrived on the scene, Lemon told them that she had been only kidding when she made her strange remarks. However, what is really strange about this is newspapers and wire service reports quoted LAPD Sergeant V.A. Peterson as saying, and I quote, Miss Lemon blurted, quote, He's probably going to shoot himself. Noise was heard upstairs. She continued, He's opening a drawer to get the gun. A shot was heard. See there. I told you so. End quote. Now, whether or not this is true will probably never be known. Lenorn died on New Year's Day of 1990, taking whatever knowledge she had to the grave with her. They found George Reeves upstairs on his bed with a luger between his feet and a bullet hole in his head. Reeves died of a gunshot wound to the head in the upstairs bedroom of his home at 1579 Benedict Canyon Drive in Benedict Canyon between 1.30 and 2 a.m. on June 16th of 1959, according to the Los Angeles Police Department report. In contemporaneous news articles, Lemon attributed Reeves' alleged suicide to depression caused by his failed career and inability to find more work. The report made by the Los Angeles Police states, and I quote, Reeves was depressed because he couldn't get the sort of parts he wanted. End quote. The official story given by Lemon to the police placed her in the living room with party guests at the same time of the shooting, but hearsay statements from Fred Crane, Reeves' friend and colleague from Gone with the Wind, put Lemon either inside or in direct proximity to Reeves' bedroom, according to Crane, who was not present. Bill Bliss told Millicent Trent after the shot rang out while Bliss was having a drink that Lenore Lemon came downstairs and said, Tell him I was down here. Tell him I was down here. Now, a number of questionable physical findings were reported by investigators and others. First, Reeves was found naked. There was no doubt that he'd enjoyed a few drinks that evening, but even drunk, it stretches the imagination that someone would strip before committing suicide. No fingerprints were recovered from the gun. No gunpowder residue was found on Reeves' hands, although some sources contend that it may not have been looked for as gunshot residue testing was not routinely performed in 1959. The bullet that killed Reeves was covered from the bedroom ceiling and the spent shell casing was found under his body. Two additional bullets were discovered and embedded in the bedroom floor. All three bullets had been fired from the weapon found at Reeves's feet, though all witnesses agreed they heard only one gunshot, and there was no sign of forced entry or other physical evidence that a second person was in the room, nor did they count the number of bullets remaining in the gun. The police were not called for at least half an hour to 45 minutes after the death, and the theory is that Lenore and the house guests had to sober up so they could get their story straight. Now, despite the unanswered questions, Reeves' death was officially ruled a suicide based on witness statements, physical evidence at the scene, and the autopsy report. Reeves' mother, however, thought the ruling premature and permatory and retained attorney Jerry Geisler to petition for a reinvestigation of the case as a possible homicide. The findings of a second autopsy conducted at Geisler's request were the same as the first, except for a series of bruises of unknown origin about the head and body. A month later, having uncovered no evidence contradicting the official finding, Geisler announced that he was satisfied that the gunshot wound had been self-inflicted and withdrew from the case quite quickly and without explanation. There has been widespread speculation over who might have killed Reeves and why, if he didn't do it himself. One theory has it that he was killed by Lenore in a fit of passion or an argument, possibly over whether they would marry. But like everything else surrounding Reeves' death, this is pure speculation. And if this was the case, why would the house guests risk their own reputations to cover for her? 
What came to light during the independent investigation was the presence of two bullet holes in the floor at the foot of Reeves's bed. How did they get there? Well, Lenore's explanation was that she was playing with the gun on another occasion several days earlier and it discharged. Lenore, when questioned, maintained that Reeves killed himself due to his failed career and his alleged inability to find more work. Unfortunately for these theorists who suspect foul play, her version of the evening events is the only official one. There was no reliable list of exactly who was present in the house at the time of the shooting, and according to Lemon, those present were Carol von Ronkel, William Bliss, and Robert Condon. Now, some theorists suggest that Reeves and Lenore's relationship was quite volatile and they were often seen arguing in public. Her reputation as a New York City nightclub hellraiser dated back to the 1940s, leading some to conclude that she and Reeves could have been arguing in his bedroom the night he was shot. She could have been holding the gun and it may have discharged as they struggled for possession of it. This could possibly explain the bullet holes in the floor in addition to the fatal wound in his head and the bullet hole in the ceiling. Casting further suspicion on Lenore, many wondered why she left California the days after Rhea's death, never to return, and never explaining why she waited so long after the death to call the police. None of the other house guests have ever provided public testimony. Given credence to the theory that Lenore or another person might have been involved, was the angle at which the shot appeared to have been fired? A bullet hole was found in the ceiling above the bed, now how would that have gotten there if Reeves fired the fatal shot himself into his head while lying down? Over the years, the general assumption has been that Reeves was depressed over the Superman show's cancellation and this depression caused him to take his own life. He was supposedly unhappy over being typecast into the Superman role and unhappy over not being able to get any other roles. However, his supposed slump was over by the time of his death and his friends agreed he was happier than he'd been in years. He was looking forward to his marriage and to another season of the popular TV show, which would have been rescheduled for the following season. Money wasn't a problem either. He got residuals from the Superman reruns and other sources. In addition to that, he had reportedly signed a five-picture deal with Paramount Pictures. Over the years after Reeves' death, Jack Larson and Noel Neal both insisted that Reeves did not commit suicide. However, neither of them were there when it happened. But there is some credible evidence that could be used to back up the suicide theory and verdict. It was reported that Reeves, for example, had suffered a concussion in an auto accident shortly before his death, which resulted in a doctor prescribing heavy-duty painkillers. This leads some to suspect that his mental health may have been compromised, and he could indeed have been driven to take his own life. He also had a drinking problem at one time, but had reportedly gone on the wagon about a year before his death. Nonetheless, the blood alcohol content found in his body shortly after his death was revealed to be 0.27, two and a half times the legal intoxication point. Now we get into the controversy surrounding this alleged suicide. Now, actors Alan Ladd and Jig Young were reportedly skeptical of the official determination. Reeves' friend Roy Calhoun told a reporter, no one in Hollywood believes the suicide theory, end quote. In their book, Hollywood Kryptonite, Sam Kastner and Nancy, and I'm going to butcher this name, Schoenberger, make a case for the involvement of MGM Vice President and Fixer Eddie Mannix. Reeves had been having an affair with his wife, Tony Mannix. Others suggested that Eddie Mannix, rumored to have mafia ties, ordered Reeves to be killed. Now we're going to get into who Eddie Mannix is. 
So Joseph Edgar Allen John Mannix, born February 25th of 1891 and died August 30th of 1963, was an American film studio executive and producer. He is remembered for his work as a fixer who was paid to cover up Hollywood stars' often colourful private lives to protect their public image and profitability for the studio. Among his most lasting contributions to Hollywood was a ledger he maintained that lists the cost and revenues of every MGM film produced between 1924 and 1962, an important reference for film historians. Now we're going to get into his early life. Mannix was born in Fort Lee, New Jersey, the son of John and Lizzie, nay striker Mannix. Christian Joseph Edgar Allen John Mannix, he used Edgar Joseph Mannix as his official name, but was known to most associates as Eddie. He was of Irish Catholic descent. Now we'll get into his career and personal life. After working as a bouncer and then treasurer of the Palisades Amusement Park, he became involved in motion picture exhibition, eventually working his way up to general manager with an MGM in the 1920s. The Eddie Mannix Ledger is in the Margaret Herrick Library at Fairbanks Centre for Motion Picture Study. Now, Mannix was married twice and had no children. He married Bernice Fitzmorris in 1916. Mannix had numerous affairs during the marriage, but the couple remained married due to their Catholicism. However, in late 1937, Bernice petitioned for divorce, claiming that Mannix physically abused her and also citing the affairs. Before the divorce was officially filed, Bernice died in a car accident outside Palm Springs, California on November 18th of 1937. After Bernice's death, Mannix began living with actress and Siegfried Follies dancer Tony Lanner, with whom he had been having an affair. They married in May 1951 and remained married until Mannix's death in 1963. Mannix was suspected of involvement in the death of actor George Reeves, the star of the Adventures of Superman television series. Reeves had begun having an affair with Mannix's wife Tony in 1951. Mannix reportedly approved of the affair, which was an open secret in Hollywood. Eddie Mannix was simultaneously having a long-term affair with a Japanese woman. As Mannix and his wife were Catholics who did not believe in the divorce, the arrangement continued for the next several years. Reeves, however, ended the affair in early 1959 and soon became engaged to socialite Lenore Lemon, which devastated Tony. Reeves died of a gunshot wound to the head at his home on June 16th of 1959. His death was ruled a suicide, but controversy has surrounded that ruling ever since. Rumours arose that Mannix, who was rumoured to have had connections to organised crime, had arranged for Reeves to be murdered by a hitman. Kashner and Schoenberger's partially fictionalised biography Hollywood Kryptonite alleged without citing any sources that Tony Lanier Mannix, using her husband's criminal connections, ordered George Reeves' murder. During his career as a studio fixer at MGM, Mannix allegedly left a trail of secret abortions, sham marriages, and several other unsolved homicides in his wake. The enormity of Mannix's job description as a fixer of problems that popped up in Hollywood took a great deal of complicity, and MGM helped to furnish that. Hollywood studios once wielded nearly feudal levels of power. Backlots were essentially self-sufficient, from the colossal ranch of Warner Brothers to the palatal surroundings of the 20th century Fox lot. Mitchell Goldwyn Myers was the biggest of them all. Its backlot in Culver City spread over 176 acres, holding 200 permanent buildings that included a dentist and a barber shop. More transitory facets included an array of sets, jungles, ancient temples, New York streets, and European villages. The lot had its own railway station to ship in lumber for set building, and the commissary fed some 2,700 people per day. These were practically self-contained movie-making cities with an according rule of law. 
As such, there were studio doctors and a homegrown police force specially trained to recognise all contract players on the lot. If a crime or a scandalous medical condition popped up, these people were the first on the scene well before the LAPD were informed. Some of the better-known scandals taken care of by studio police were the apparent suicide of Gene Harlow's husband, Paul Byrne, the cold case murder of Silent Era director William Desmond Taylor, and the stabbing death of Lana Turner's abusive boyfriend, Johnny, and I'm going to butcher this last name, Stompanto, all have something in common. In each case, studio officials were at the scene of the crime for hours before police were called. Mannix was alleged to have fixed many problems that plagued Hollywood actors and elite alike. As the general manager and later vice president of MGM Studios during that period, Mannix had people all over Los Angeles on his payroll, from members of the police to doctors and even coroners, which meant he could spin a story whichever way he needed to. He worked very closely with MGM's head of publicity, Howard Strickling, who influenced how the press reported on the studio's films and stars. While Strickling distracted the media, it was Mannix's job to make the scandalous stories disappear. In an article for Vanity Fair, David Stein alleges that Mannix helped to quash rape charges against an MGM executive in the 1930s, even after the victim, Patricia Douglas, went directly to the district attorney with her case. Then there's the story that provides the plot for the 2006 film Hollywood Land, the mysterious suicide of TV's original Superman, George Reeves. Reeves had been having an affair with Mannix's wife, Tony, before suffering a few near-fatal car accidents. He died of an apparently self-inflicted gunshot wound to the head in 1959, which I just spoke about. Mannix kept megastar Clark Gable out of trouble so often he considered Eddie one of his closest friends. In 1933, for example, Gable was reported to have run over and killed actress Tosca Rowland, and it is alleged that Mannix paid off MGM screenwriter John Huston to take the blame. Luckily, Huston was never charged due to lack of evidence. One year later, Gable allegedly sexually assaulted Loretta Young, his co-star in Call of the Wild, and she fell pregnant. To prevent a scandal and echoing a plotline of Hail Caesar, Mannix helped Loretta to adopt her own daughter publicly before his second birthday. Now, Joan Crawford was constantly surrounded by rumours and scandal that she lied about her date of birth to make herself appear older to join MGM Studios, that her freckles and red hair were masked by makeup, and she even changed her name from LaSalle Faye LeSueur. Nothing was more scandalous, however, than the pornographic film that Joan starred in during her pre-fame years. Mannix allegedly tracked down every last copy and paid $100,000 of the studio's money to buy the original negative of said pornographic film. Now we come to George Reeves, who played the eponymous hero in the 1950s TV series Adventures of Superman and was believed to have committed suicide in 1959 by shooting himself in the head. However, rumours persist that Mannix allegedly ordered a hit on Reeves when he found out his wife Tony was having an affair with the actor. This mystery surrounding Reeves' death made it to the big screen in 2006's Hollywood Land, where Reeves was portrayed by Ben Affleck. The rumour was never confirmed, but it's also never been dismissed. Now we come to 1932, in which director Paul Byrne married the studio's biggest star, Gene Harlow, despite already having a wife in New York. One night, neighbours heard a man and a woman arguing in the Hollywood Hills. There was a sound of breaking glass and then a gunshot. Byrne lay dead in his bathroom with a bullet through his head, and Mannix arrived and knew instantly what had happened. Byrne's first wife was in town, and when they argued, she ended up killing him. The scandal would have ruined Gene Harlow's career and the studio's, so with the help of the police, who were on Mannix's his payroll, they staged the murder as a suicide and it was never questioned. 
Mannix also did all he could to protect the top Hollywood studio at the time. In 1937, for example, one of the studio's young actresses called Patricia Douglas answered a casting call requesting that she show up at the studio lot on the 5th of May. On the lot, Douglas and a number of other girls were given cowgirl outfits and that showed plenty of leg and full camera-ready hair and makeup. They were promised $7.50 for a day's work, but it wasn't until 300 salesmen and executives arrived that the woman realised that they'd been hired to provide a female element at the private party. The night sadly ended with Douglas allegedly being raped and when she tried to take legal action, Mannix went into damage control mode. The studio allegedly paid for statements from the other guests saying Patricia was uncontrollably drunk and when the court date arrived, no lawyers turned up and a federal judge was finally forced to dismiss the case. Now we get into the later years and death of both Reeves and Mannix. Mannix suffered from a weak heart. By 1959, he had survived several heart attacks and used a wheelchair. On August 30th of 1963, he died of a heart attack at his Beverly Hills home at the age of 72. He is buried at the Holy Cross Cemetery in Culver City, Los Angeles County. Reeves, on the other hand, is interred at Mountain View Cemetery and Mausoleum in El Tadena, California. In 1960, Reeves was awarded a star on Hollywood's Walk of Fame and Hollywood's Boulevard for his contribution to the TV industry. In 1985, he was promiscuously named one of the honorees by DC Comics in the company's 50th anniversary publication, 50 Who Made DC Great. With that, this case remains open, but with many unanswered questions, it still remain unanswered. Please rate the show and let me know what you guys think about this and the many other cases I've covered. You can follow me on all major social media platforms, YouTube, BitChute, Dailymotion. I'm also on Twitter and Instagram. Links are all down below in the description. If you have a case you'd like me to have a look at or cover, don't hesitate to send me a message. I'm your host, and this has been the Unanswered Questions Podcast. Until next time next on unanswered questions now in 2016 a mysterious person or a group of hackers revealed how big a threat cybercrime can be calling themselves the shadow brokers the hackers released more than a gigabyte worth of highly sensitive tools allegedly belonging to the american national security agency nsa tailored access operations tau unit the equation group